Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm excited to have with me Miss Callie Dayton, who is a nurse practitioner in a medical surgical intensive care unit in Utah. She's the host also of a podcast called Walking Home from the ICU. And in that podcast, she discusses the long-term outcomes of ICU survivors and how the Awaken Walking ICU helps patients resume their lives. So she covers a lot of really great stuff there, and we got in touch, and I think it'll be really interesting to talk both about kind of early mobility and early ambulation in general, and then hear from Callie about some of what she's learned from doing interviews with patients who have actually lived this and can talk about their own experiences. So I think it's going to be really interesting, and I'm excited to have her. Callie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Wilpa. Um, so let's start with um, you. Why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about you know who you are, how you got where you are, and uh, we'll go from there. Um, I'm Kaylee Dayton. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, but I ended up in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, with my first job as a critical care nurse, and I started in an awakened walking ICU. So it was the only thing I ever knew. I thought it was completely normal to have patients awake the moment after intubation, oriented, calm, walking on a ventilator. That was normal to me. So I worked there for a few years, and then I became a travel nurse around the country, and I had a huge culture shock. Um, Everywhere else I worked, the standard was to deeply sedate anyone that was intubated. And I frequently asked, I, I was pretty young in critical care. I didn't know enough to really carry on a conversation about it, but I would ask, but why are they sedated? And people would say, because they're intubated. And they would look at me like I was crazy. And then I keep asking, why are they sedated? I just, it never made sense to me. It felt wrong. Um, but I was just filling in. I was just went in, had the win in Rome approach and just went with a flow. So I did travel for a few years Still didn't understand the big picture of sedation and immobility. And then I went to grad school to become a nurse practitioner. And even during my three years of doctorate studies, we never discussed big picture patient outcomes, but it at least gave me the tools to look into research. And when I started looking into research, my mind was blown (laughs) Um, when I realized how different outcomes are depending on how we manage patients on ventilators. So then once I graduated, I returned to the wake and walking ICU um, as a nurse practitioner and have learned a lot since then. Um, but I, I started trying to talk to nurses, doctors, uh, respiratory therapists, other people online about how to manage patients on ventilators. And there was a lot of disbelief, um, a lot of um, misconceptions. Nurses would say, well, we give sedation because it's more comfortable for patients. We give it to prevent PTSD. 
We give it because there's no way they can tolerate being on the ventilator while being awake. I would want to be sedated and lots of things that didn't quite um, match up with research. And so um, I started going into survivor pages because I would, I've seen people be awake and walking on the ventilators, but maybe it's, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal if sedation really does make them more comfortable, but the only people that can tell us are the survivors. So I created a Google voicemail and I went onto these survivor pages and said, please leave a voicemail. Tell me what you experienced under sedation. And I didn't say, um, what hallucinations did you experience? I didn't give any clues. I just said, what did you experience under sedation? Yet, I think it's my episode four. That's what became my episode four in which they only talked about their hallucinations. They talked about their severe delirium, the tears, the nightmares that they experienced, and the PTSD that it has since caused. And that's when it started to really click for me, that this is a huge problem. And if people only knew what it was actually like for patients, then they would change. We have so much research. We have decades of research showing the poor outcomes that are resulted from sedation and mobility, but it means nothing until we see it from patient perspective. And so I just started finding these amazing survivors that were eager to share their stories. And that's how my podcast came to be. That's amazing. And and so, so important. And I love how you've highlighted the fact that we've, it's not a new discovery that deep sedation or maybe even any sedation in the ICU and certainly the immobility, these things being bad, we've known. And yet practice doesn't follow uh, what we know from the research, as you've said, and yet how compelling to actually talk to people who've been through it and, and hear some of the, the exact opposite, right, of what, of what we assume. We assume, oh, who would want to be, you know, not sedated with a breathing tube in, and yet it may be worse to have that sedation and the breathing tube, and, and you're hearing this from people themselves. So we'll talk more about that. I, I want to um, ask, you know, you, you kind of got there in this interesting way. You started having people leave these voice messages. Was it that when you started to get those voice messages that made you think, hmm, maybe I'll start a podcast to kind of get these messages out? Or how, how did the podcast itself come about? Um, you know, I barely listened to podcasts before this. Now I'm into all sorts of podcasts, but um, I had always felt like it was my personal mission to disseminate what we do in the Awake and Walk in ICU. This ICU put out a study back in 2007, 13 years ago, showing that it's safe and feasible to walk on a ventilator. And yet nothing's changed. People are still completely unaware of what's possible. So I, I had thought about getting my PhD, going into research, but then the question was always, but what is that even going to mean? We have research, but we don't apply it. We don't use it. How do we help people understand the reality of what we do to people in the ICU? And just one day it was just, I felt like it was revelation from above. It was thou shalt start a podcast. And so that's kind of where it started. And it um, just kind of grew from there. And I'm amazed by how many people are actually really interested in and knowing the big picture outcomes of patient care. Yeah. And a podcast these days, uh, obviously I'm biased as well, but it seems <laughs> to me like a great avenue. I think people are, this is kind of the time of podcasts. People are very into them. They listen to them. I think we all are so busy that something we can do while we're, you know, jogging or commuting is such a, a compelling way to learn. Um, so when, how long have you been doing it? When did you start your podcast? I think I started recording back in February. So it's oh, really great. new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many episodes do you have so far? Um, almost 50. Um, wow. Yeah, it was quick. And it, it was. I'd wake up in the morning and I would just have this inspiration to know exactly what I needed to do. And I felt like I had to have it done by March, the beginning of March. And I didn't, it was, it was a spiritual thing. I know that probably sounds weird, but I, and I questioned it. I thought that's so weird. Most podcasts go week by week and very gradual, but it was this very clear sense of urgency so then when COVID hit, I thought, well, that was weird. That was, why did I feel so, such a sense of urgency when that's going to be on the back burner? Cause now it's all about COVID. And it's almost like I got, like I got a spiritual backhand saying, you don't understand this is what it's for. This is when it's really going to matter. I mean, it's always mattered. We've always, this research was all about um, improving patient outcomes in the name of compassion. But now we're in a situation where we're considering um, shortage of ventilators, shortage of rehabilitation services. So now it's out of necessity that we have to prevent harm and get patients off the ventilators, out of the ICU, and back to functional lives. 
far quicker. So it was just interesting to me to see that that came to me, that revelation came to me at the time that I had to do those episodes because COVID was coming. Yeah, it's so interesting. You're right. The timing is incredible. And and now, you know, we've essentially, we, we've always had people intubated in ICUs and that hasn't changed, but now we've added this whole nother cohort of people intubated in ICUs. So all the more urgency. Let's talk about early mobility in general. What What do we know about it? You mentioned that there are a lot of misconceptions out there. People think that sedation, uh, which kind of goes along with lack of mobility, is a good thing, something patients want. Um, certainly, I know w- there's a thought that it's safer. In other words, well, if we don't sedate someone, they'll, they'll get agitated, they'll pull out their breathing tube, and even when they can't live without it. So what are some of the misconceptions? And then what, do we, what is the truth? What do we actually know about early mobility and, and, um, in general? Yeah, we've had some surveys done in the last like 10 years. And throughout those surveys, it's shown that at least 66% of nurses believe sedation is for patient comfort. And um, that didn't make sense to me until I started learning about sedation vacations. Because honestly, in the wake of walking ICU, we don't even start sedation unless someone needs to be paralyzed, have an open abdomen, severe alcohol or drug toxicities. So very certain exceptions. So we weren't standardized with the A to F bundle because we didn't need to do awake and breathing vacations or trials. And so when I learned how to do vacations, I don't think I learned them right. I learned that you just turn down the propofol enough to watch them flail all four. And the nurse that taught me said, see, and then you know that they can't handle it. So you turn the sedation back on. So I think a lot of our misconceptions come from patients coming out of sedation in severe delirium. So we see agitation, we see terror, we see severe discomfort, but we have to understand where that's coming from. I think we assume, and reasonably so, that it's just from the ET tube because we know that that's uncomfortable. When in reality, once we listen to these survivors talk about what they're experiencing under sedation, we understand that they are in alternative realities that are far worse than the reality of the ICU. If I spend a week thinking my kids are kidnapped, the second I'm able to move my body, you better believe I'm out of bed because I'm going to be fixated on that, terrified. I don't know what the breathing tube is. I'm going to pull it out because I got to go get my kids. That's what these people are living and worse. And so they're in delirium and delirium is causing the anxiety. It's causing the agitation. So what I experience in the wake and walking ICU is they get sedated for intubation You explain to them what's going on beforehand, for the most part, unless it's an emergency. They get intubated, they wake up, and there is a moment of confusion and a little bit in panic. So we start with them restrained. They they come out of it, they're they're frazzled, and we remind them of what they knew 20 minutes ago. You're not clearing out hours, days, weeks of sedation. They're not in severe delirium. They're just quickly confused. Then you remind them of what's going on, let them feel the ET tube, see it in the mirror, get used to it 15 minutes to an hour later, they're pretty adjusted and most people can be unrestrained. So that decreases a lot of agitation. When you're not strapped to a bed, you can communicate, you can be autonomous, call the shots, know what's going on. I mean, that is exactly what I would want for myself. I'm kind of a control freak. So if I think that I'm being tied down and trees are falling on top of me, I'm going to panic. But these patients are allowed to have their coping mechanisms intact but most people have not seen that. So we assume that any patient, it's just going to be wild, delirious, agitated, hard to handle. And delirium is very difficult to handle. It is dangerous. So incidences like um, self-extubations, line removals, falls, things like that usually happen when people are delirious. So what we found is if we prevent delirium, then we have far less events. So up until COVID, because COVID, the whole isolation, some of our new beds, it, we've had some complications. We went two years without having self-excavations because no one in their right mind is going to pull out their lifeline. They understand that p- patients protect themselves. So we had a COVID patient a little bit ago that coughed so hard that her ventilator tubing came disconnected from her ET tube. But I walked by the room and the vent was beeping. I popped my head in and she... Um, was holding her tube and the tubing together, but it looked like she was going to self-extubate. And everyone panicked. We got in and she said, no, of course I wasn't going to pull my tube out. 
I was keeping my tubing together so I could stay alive. And so in reality, when we don't make people crazy, they don't do crazy things and they are much more compliant and safe with therapies. Um, I think we think that um, when people are so sick that they can only be on bed rest, which there's a difference between bed rest. Bed rest is when people are awake and able to move their own limbs in bed and they just don't get up. Immobility is what we do in the ICU. We sedate them. They don't move a muscle for weeks, but we assume that they're too sick to walk. It's just all part of this cultural paradigm that we've built up throughout the decades of ventilator use that when someone's on a ventilator, they can't move, um, which is completely opposite. I mean, nursing 101 teaches if someone's on a medical floor, they're on a nasal cannula because of pneumonia, get up and walk. Their lungs get better. Their atelectasis gets better. Yet when we get to the point of need a ventilator, that basic principle goes out the window. They're like, their lungs are so sick. We better just let their lungs sit there. Secretions just be totally immobilized and see what happens. But in the wake and walking ICU, people get their lungs better, faster, secretions are mobilized. They, they keep the strength in their diaphragm. Um, and so it's all of a, all in a cultural paradigm. And the wake and walking ICU, for the most part, unless someone can't oxygenate with movement, like with severe ARDS, you hit a threshold. But up until that point, the mentality in the wake and walking ICU is, wow, this patient is so sick, we better get them up. We recognize that mobility is medicine, movement is healing. And so it's just, I think it's deeply cultural, such um, deeply held beliefs that conflict with research. But when we're not aware of research, I feel like a lot of the nursing community is unaware of research. I'm, of course, I'm on the nursing side, but when I talk to as well, intensivists that come to our ICU for the first time, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, they think, as far as PTSD, nurses believe that um, sedation prevents PTSD because you don't remember what happened. You don't understand what happened. That doesn't mean that nothing's happening. So I explained to a, a new intensivist recently that we cause PTSD with sedation. And he was his mind was blown. I was just It was really surprising to see that even especially in the medical, medical community, there is complete oblivion to what causes these life-altering and debilitating psychological effects of ICU stays. We have research, which I included in, my, in the show notes, that shows that recalling actual experiences and memories in the ICU is protective against post-ICU PTSD, depression, anxiety. And that is a huge misconception in our ICU community. So when we listen to survivors, we actually get context. We understand what they really experienced and why that's so traumatizing. Um, I've interviewed our survivors that have been awake and walking on that ventilator for three plus weeks, and they don't have PTSD. Yeah, I mean, that is so compelling The and, and rings true. And I think, I hope, and I think that for people who practice in the ICU, uh, it makes sense. It makes that what we see is really delirium much more than it is any kind of, you know, and what I mean is, as you said, when we, when we lighten sedation, if we have someone sedated and they, then they kind of start flailing and we worry this isn't safe. It doesn't seem like somebody who is, and of course it isn't someone who's actively choosing to try to pull out their tube. As you said, no one in their right mind would pull out a breathing tube that's keeping them alive. So I, I do think that's right, that it's delirium. And I think you're absolutely right that people have this misconception that it's just safer. It's for their, it's for people's own good. It's safer, whether that's safer because it'll prevent them pulling out a tube, whether it's safer because it'll prevent things like PTSD, whether it's just more comfortable. I mean, all of these things that you mentioned are, are misconceptions. And so you mentioned a few things that are actual evidence-based advantages to reducing or even eliminating sedation. So you said less delirium, more strength, although that's, I think we mean mobility, but of course, the less sedated you are, the more you mobile you can be. And we'll talk specifically about walking while intubated in a minute, but even just in general, the less sedated you are, the more you can move, even if it's in bed. You mentioned mobilizing secretions. You mentioned reducing psychological uh, morbidities such as PTSD. Are there other things that you want to highlight that, that we know from, from studies are benefits of low or lim- uh, lowering or eliminating sedation? Yeah, sedation directly predicts mortality rates. So I, I mean, I appreciate all these drug studies that we're doing with the COVID and we're trying to increase, improve mortality rates with those things. But we already know that 
the less we sedate people, the more likely they are to survive. In the short term, they're more likely to survive the ICU, but they're also more likely to survive one, two plus years post-discharge. Um, less sedation uh, decreases the time on the ventilator. So the less we sedate people, the quicker they get off the ventilator, um, in part because we don't cause them to be hypoactive delirious. We don't cause them to get so weak that they can't hold their own head up, take their own breath, clear their own secretion so we can take out the breathing tube once their lungs are healed. Um, less sedation improves their functional status in the short and long term. And I think functional status is with physical strength, so we avoid ICU-acquired weakness, but also their cognitive functions. Sedation is directly related to cognitive function down the road. So we talk about safety as in keeping the ET tube in, which is important. Yet in my mind, my paradigm has shifted where I I think of safety as how do I prevent long-term harm? So we might have a delirious patient that's a little crazy for a bit. And while we're clearing out delirium, we have to keep the long-term perspective in mind. So it's how do we get through this shift, keep them safe, but prevent them from having post-ICU dementia? Dr. Bus Ely is doing further research about what happens to people's brains, and he's doing, um, he's dissecting these brains, he's scanning these brains, and he's showing a post-ICU dementia. So that changes my perspective. If I see someone agitated, delirious from sepsis and all the other risk factors that happen, keeping them safe has changed. It's not just keeping them in bed, which is important. Keeping the ET tube, it's important, but also how do we protect and keep their brain safe? How do we keep their psychological functions safe? How do we keep their body safe? So um, less sedation we use, the better the cognitive and functional outcomes are. And then from a hospital standpoint, less sedation we use, the lower our healthcare costs are. Their total length of stay in the hospital is less. They don't, they're less likely to go to rehabilitation, nursing homes. They're more likely to move on with their jobs, their lives. They're less likely to be readmitted into the ICU or the hospital. So sedation has a huge list of um, repercussions that we have to be aware of. Yeah, I think absolutely. we dismiss. Absolutely. And that, that was, you know, really, I think, a, a powerful and um, thorough uh, list of all these reasons why. And of course, you know, unlike some things like we might say, you know, if we do this incredibly extensive bundle of things, there's a, a positive outcome. Here, we're actually saying if we do less, right? All, all we have to do is less and it produces all of these benefits. Now, I, I think people will ask this, and I'm interested to hear your perspective. People will say, okay, I get it. Deep sedation, propofol, not a good thing. But how about Presidex? They'll say, we use Presidex, right? We, we uh, and that's dexmedetomidine um, mm-hmm. for folks who uh, want the generic names. So we, uh, we think people uh, should be awake. Presidex does not, you know, heavily sedate people. We think that um, there's even some evidence that uh, dexmedetomidine may help prevent the onset of delirium. So is, how does that fit in? Do we know the answer to that? Should we be uh, using Presidex, is it better than, I think we probably could say it's better than propofol. Is it, is it better than nothing? Is nothing the best? And then if you have to use something Presidex, how, do, how does that work into the equation? Yeah, I think um, it all depends on what our goals are. If our goals are to keep people awake, engaged, um, active during the day, real sleep at night, then we're able to find the, use the right tools to facilitate that. So if we just automatically deeply sedate anyone that get, the second they get intubated, we no longer personalize, customized care. They're just there to rot in the bed for the next foreseeable future until we finally figure out a way to start waking them up. I mean, I think starting deep sedation is like biting off the top of a grenade, handing it down to the next shift until it explodes on someone when they have to wake them up, go through the delirium, and then rehab has to come in and fix our mess of severe immobility. So as far as Presidex, Theoretically, and the goal should be that they can be more, um, it can help their agitation without deeply sedating them. And yet when I look at these studies, I mean, we just recently had, and I can attach it to, uh, the, there was a study that showed that there was no difference between no sedation and light sedation, right? Um, and people were really excited about it. But if you look at the methodology, both of these groups, 
between the no sedation and light sedation, they both received sedation. I think the no sedation received pushes or boluses of sedation. Um, the other group was on dexmedetomidine. And so um, ultimately, they both have the same RASs. The Richmond agitation scale tells us how sedated they are. They were almost equally sedated the whole time. So really, their outcomes weren't different because their treatments really weren't different. Um, our goal should be a RAS scale of zero. They should be awake, calm, um, oriented, compliant, and yet um, we can use Presidex to make people a RAS of negative three. So it just depends on how you use it. I also think it's even more important to make sure that we're addressing the cause. So if we see someone that's agitated and we just think, well, it's the ET tube, then we're doing a huge disservice by just sedating them. We're just masking anxiety. The RAS doesn't really reflect anxiety. It reflects psychomotor um, activity. So I find that there's such a huge um, value to the skill set that our nurses and providers have in the wake and walking ICU because they look at a person that seems to be uncomfortable and they say, what's causing the discomfort? Is it, um, are they uncomfortable in their bed? We get them up to a chair. We walk them. Walking is actually a huge relief for anxiety. No one wants to be stuck in their bed 24 hours a day. So getting up, going on a walk, then sitting in a chair um, is a huge relief to anxiety. Do they have questions or do they need to be suctioned? Patients can get get this uncomfortable when they can feel they need to be suctioned and they can tell us they need to be suctioned. So when we actually listen to our patients, assess the cause of the anxiety, the agitation, then we can treat it with non, non-pharmacological options. And yet you have people with baseline anxiety. Um, you need to make sure that they're on their home psych meds and all those things, but patients be, can become delirious even without sedation. So sedation doesn't treat delirium. It just masks it. It prolongs it. It worse, worsens it. So my concern is with Presidex that sometimes we're inclined to just mask it because it makes it easier for us. Um, but it can be a great tool when people are delirious, they're, um, they're not safe, but the goal should be to keep them able to walk. I mean, walking helps delirium. So if we sedate someone so much, even with Presidex, that they can't get up and walk, can't coordinate their own movements, then we've again done them a huge disservice. So I'm not against sedation. This is not, the wake and walk in ICU is not a sedation-less ICU. We just try to use it to the patient's benefit, not to the staff's benefit. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So one of the things I think is really interesting is this idea of getting people through the period of agitation that is very common when sedation is lightened or turned off. So you described it as, you know, potentially passing this kind of time bomb on because if someone's deeply sedated and one practitioner keeps them that way and the next one does too, and now you're, you know, a week in, two weeks in, and somebody says, you know, all right, I, I heard Callie's podcast, right? I, I think this is, I want to stop this. Um, but they try, and every time they try, the, the patient gets incredibly agitated, and the nurses say, this is insane. And, and this is the thing, right? I can tell you for sure that as, a, as an intensivist in the ICU, one of the big pressures I feel, and I know my colleagues feel, is from nurses who, who will get very upset with us if we decide to lighten the sedation because the patient gets really agitated. They're flailing around. The nurses think we're putting them in danger. And uh, I mean, the patient and the nurse. And mm-hmm. so how can we, what do you recommend? How do people who want to do this get through that period? I mean, obviously the easiest thing would be don't start the sedation in the first place, right? That then, like you said, hopefully you would just have a, maybe a brief disorientation after the initial propofol or, or whatever you're using for induction wears off but that may be pretty minor and you could just kind of coach them through it for a few minutes. But what about if it's been a while? How do you get through that in a way that the nurses can feel like their safety is being taken into account and the patient obviously as well? Yeah, that is so difficult because we, it's not like we never see delirium in the wake and walking ICU. We have patients in septic shock or alcohol withdrawal. You know, we, there are a lot of things that can cause delirium. Um, I think one of the things that make it so much easier for me as a nurse practitioner when I'm not ordering sedation, granted, no one asks for it because they, they don't, they don't expect it. They don't want it. Um, I think a lot of it is the cultural standard and the um, understanding from nurses. So in critical care conferences, when we talk about these things, providers always say, 
well, we can't get our nurses to do that. I don't believe that's true. And I definitely believe that nurses don't understand the big picture. So in my environment, I'm working with nurses that understand the big picture. They also understand the pharmacology behind it. So if we get a patient from an outside facility that's been sedated for a week, 10 days or more, um, nurses are really upset that, that they ever got to that point. And they recognize that it's not the patient isn't agitated because the ED tube, they know that sedation is not going to help. So then what do we do? <laughs> it's it's a lot of work, but these nurses are willing to do it. I mean, they say by the bedside, we get a PSA or a personal something assistant, like a, a sitter with them essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they are restrained, elbow restraints, those kind of things. Sometimes we do some light, some light presidics. Um, but it's, it's a huge team effort to get someone out of delirium. Definitely. But I think it, it's so much more feasible when the team understands why. So they know that they're in delirium, but they know that they've had propofol for a certain amount of days. They know that this is an obese patient. The propofol is settled in the adipose tissue. They know that they have to metabolize that propofol out and they have to implement these other tools to help clear the delirium, such as mobility, being awake in the chair during the day, if they're safe to do so, um, trying to get real sleep at night. I mean, they're trying to do all these non-pharmacological things while they're letting the horrific sedatives clear out. And that is a huge difference because I think in most environments, if a patient looks more comfortable, therefore they are more comfortable. So we're more comfortable to just sedate them. Um, and yet when there is that knowledge, that understanding, and even that experience, these are nurses that have worked people through delirium for, for years to understand that it has to clear. Um, we have on the podcast some nurses that have left and gone to other environments. Um, and they're talking about their ethical dilemma that they have. They come onto a shift and the patient has already been sedated for days and yet they know that they don't have to be. So I am just amazed by their fortitude and their dedication to the right thing. And they decide to take it off. They wean it down. They spend all day trying to, keep the patient safe, work through the agitation. By the end of the day, they have them awake, sitting in the chair, sectioning their mouth out, but they come on the next day and they're sedated again. So it's, I think it's a huge cultural barrier that will only be broken as ICU teams as a whole understand the big picture and the patient perspective. I couldn't agree more. I think that is so key is that if, if a unit wants to become like yours, a wake walking ICU. It can't be that the physicians decide, you know what, we're going to do this. And it can't be that, you know, the nurses alone decide we're going to do this. Uh, it really has to be everybody on the team from the respiratory therapist to nurses, to intensivists, to nurse practitioners, to everybody. Because yeah. like you said, I, I think, you know, you could have the best intentioned uh, intensivist in the world who, you know, is can't make it happen alone and the best intentioned nurse in the world who can't make it happen alone. You need everybody's buy-in. Um, and, and that actually should be a lesson for any change anybody wants to make, right? And you need all the stakeholders involved and, and so true for this as well. And you have um, to understand the why. I think we um, try to implement the A to F bundle with a how. Just this, here's what you have to do. But we miss the why. And everyone has their why as to why they got into medicine, why they want to be there, what they want for patients. And when we connect with that and make it real, take the research and make it come alive, then they have a reason to do those hard changes. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned the A to F bundle a couple of times, and there may be folks out there who do you want to just say a word about what that is? Um, yeah, the, um, the A to F bundle is... Um, it's a protocol that helps us lighten sedation. So when patients are started on sedation, doing sedation vacations to see how, if they can breathe on their own, if they can start to wake up. Um, I, I can't speak a lot to it because I don't have a lot of experience with it, honestly. Um, Cause you guys, you're beyond that, right? Yeah. You, you're not using the, basically you're hardly using any sedation at all. So you're, you don't need to do sedation vacations. Yeah. And I, but they have so much incredible research out there that validates what we do, but it doesn't fully reflect what we do. So like in 2019, they came out with a huge, wonderful study with 15,000 patients that showed that breaking and lightning sedation um, resulted in um, increased ICU and hospital discharge, 
decrease in rate and death, coma, delirium, restraint use, mechanical ventilation. Um, it decreased ICU readmissions by 46%. It increased your probability of being discharged home by 36%. I mean, it was awesome, awesome results. But in reality, I mean, just by lightning sedation, but for the mobility part, when I looked in the methodology, only 12% of all those 15,000 patients were on their feet during that time. Um, I think 5% were taking steps in the hall, 7% were um, walking in the, taking steps in the room. So at the wake and walking ICU, you get intubated, you're awake, you're on your feet a couple hours later. We're not wasting time because it's so much harder to walk someone after they've spent days being immobilized. And so um, it validates the awake and walking ICU, but it doesn't fully reflect um, all the benefits of what right. of that process. It, it, it's almost like a transition. It's, it's getting, getting us headed in the right direction because I think it's too shocking for people to imagine not sedating someone. But again, I, I go back to the grenade analogy. I think it's so much easier if we keep someone clear of delirium and strong to begin with. That way we don't have to go and clean up messes. Absolutely. So we, let's move to now talking about what you've alluded to many times and is, is I think, you know, really the crux of this. So early mobility is great. And we've talked a lot about that. And then there's kind of yet another, which is this idea of early ambulation. So walking people, even while on a ventilator. And I think there's going to be folks out there who are going to say, what are you talking about? Right. You, you must ventilator must mean something different to you than to me. Um, but, but no, we are talking about someone on a ventilator requiring mechanical ventilation and we're talking about walking them. So talk about that. What do we know about how does it work? And is, and you know, how do you convince people it's safe and what are the advantages? I mean, we've talked a lot about them. I think just kind of a, a furtherance of, of the advantages of, of early mobility. But as you said, and please, you know, comment, but uh, walking as opposed to just being in bed and moving has huge advantages. Bearing your own weight has huge advantages um, in terms of sed- uh, clearing secretions, in terms of obviously preventing pulmonary emboli, in terms of um, being able to improve the healing of your body and your lungs and preventing diaphragmatic atrophy, being able to actually feel some sense of control and, and prevent delirium and all these things that you've mentioned. So anyway, let's talk specifically about that. What do we know about walking while intubated? Yeah, there is a huge difference between early mobility and early ambulation. So a lot of the studies that we have about early mobility, um, some of them don't even show that much of benefit. But we have to look at the methodology. Always have to look at how it was done. What was the definition of early mobility? Early mobility can be range of motion. So someone can be deeply sedated and we're just moving flaccid limbs in the bed. So one of our occupational therapists spoken on the podcast saying, my job is so different because before I was just moving dead weight in the bed, just preventing contractures, which is important. But now he gets to help people brush their teeth, um, comb their hair, put their socks on while they're intubated. So So there's just a huge difference in early mobility. So that might be just dangling someone um, which is still good, but early walking is walking and early is very subjective too. A lot of these early mobility studies, maybe the earliest they start is like three to five days after intubation early to us is a few hours after intubation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes people think that this isn't an ICU, that people aren't actually sick, that they're not on base suppressors, that they're not on high ventilator settings, right? That we get a lot of disbelief and, and it again becomes because we think that someone is sick, that they're too sick to walk. We don't want to let people get too sick to walk. We don't want to let them get too weak to walk. But that is, that's just, that's exactly what happens when we wait for days until they're totally clear. Um, And walking helps them get better faster. So someone comes in with septic shock, maybe septic pneumonia. Um, There are different elements to walking. So, we're not whipping anyone that's army crawling blue on the floor. Um, we assess each aspect of their capacity to walk and how safe they are. Again, they're safer if we start sooner for the most part, because they're not going to be so weak that they're a fault risk. Mm-hmm. So if, as far as hemodynamics, um, we look at how many vasopressors they are, they're on. If they're still in a stage where they are leaking fluid rapidly, where they're intravascularly dry, we're night calming them, dumping fluid, they're probably not going to tolerate um, getting up and walking 200 feet. But can they sit at the side of the bed? Can they sit themselves up? 
Yeah, probably. Let's see. What's the harm? If they start feeling dizzy, lightheaded, their blood pressure drops, we lay them back. But we've tried. We've tested. And we'll try again later that afternoon or in a few hours because things can change. Um, if they're on one vasopressor and the dose isn't really changing, okay, let's have them stand, take some steps. We'll have a wheelchair behind them. If they feel lightheaded, if they start having symptoms, we set them down, roll them back. What's the harm? We have never had an adverse event from walking. Um, we don't have set expectations for everybody, but we do take in consideration what were they able to do before. If someone walks into the, high, into the hospital, they should not roll out. That is inhumane in my mind that we take away someone's capacity to walk. So we're going to take in consideration what were they doing a few hours ago? Okay, they're on a ventilator, but they were still walking before. Now they have more support from the ventilator. Their work of breathing is less. Their oxygenation is better. So shouldn't they be able to walk better than they were a few hours ago? Cool. Let's keep that. So hemodynamics, um, their, their pulmonary function. Um, if someone's on a nasal cannula and four liters, but they need to go up to six liters or have an omri breather on to walk, no one bats an eye at that. If someone's on PIPA 12, 80%, and we have to go to 100% to walk them, in the wake and walk and ICU, we don't bat an eye at that. We just pre-oxygenate them give them what they need. As they get up, we assess, does the work of breathing increase? Um, are they symptomatic? Do they feel lightheaded? Are they in distress? Hardly ever are they. I mean, no one's doing cartwheels on the ventilator. But whether they walk five feet, 20 feet, sometimes up to a thousand feet on a ventilator, at least they've, like you said, borne their own weight, stood up, they've mobilized their secretions. And yes, they cough, they get secretions out, but isn't that a good thing? People are so worried about people coughing on the ventilator, but that's a good thing. <laughs> that's what we want. And so um, we're allowing them to keep their, their pulmonary strength um, by doing those things. So a lot of mobility protocols um, that people have thrown at me show that, I mean, the, the threshold for any mobility, um, one protocol that is very used across the board so that you can't dangle someone, meaning set them up at the side of the bed until their FIO2 needs are less than 60 and their PEEPs less than 8. And now we've, we're watching a lot of ARDS patients or ones like them with the COVID. It takes so long for them to get to that point. Uh-huh. Um, those are the people that are even more important to mobilize. And so um, we walk people until they can't oxygenate on the ventilator. Um, and so we've walked people on a peep of 18, 20, hundred percent, and they've done great. So we have some of those survivors are interviewed on the podcast talking about what that was like. Um, and they themselves tell us whether or not that was inhumane and they would have it no other way. So we walk them up until they can't oxygenate with movement. Their lung compliance is poor. The PF ratio is low until they have to be prone and paralyzed. They're up and walking. And I think we prevent a lot of that um, severity of, of, pulmonary dysfunction. Um, and yet once, if they do have to be prone and paralyzed, at least they've been walking up until that point. We interview a survivor of COVID that was awake and walking on his ventilator for six days and then was lightly sedated prone for two days, then paralyzed after that for two days and deeply sedated for another six days. So he was prone for eight days total. Yet if we had just deeply sedated and immobilized him those six days before, his outcome would have been totally different. Yet once he could get supine again, he was back on his feet, at least dangled, working on getting back on his feet. Four days later, after being supine, he was extubated. Ten days later, he was getting himself into his car and going home. Wow. And then for his 70th birthday, six weeks later, he was golfing. So wow. we didn't look at a ventilator setting and say, oh, my goodness, his peep is 16 and he's at 60, 80%. We can't move him. They thought they were saying he could be getting worse. He could get to the point of being paralysis. We have to keep him strong so that he has something to come back to. Um, if we start at a very weak point to even start paralysis, then we've lost so much ground and he's going to end up trach, pegged, going to LTAC. And those are bad words in the wake and walking ICU. We don't trach people. We don't send people to LTAC. 98% of our survivors go home. And there's a certain expectation of that amongst the nurses. And they look at the big picture. So, so if someone has hypoactive delirium, they're not moving. People panic. They say, what if he has to go to an LTAC? Whereas I saw in other, other environments, it was, you get intubated, you're probably going to an LTAC. So that's a huge difference. And LTAC, so, just for folks who don't know, is long-term yeah. care. 
right? Yeah. Or a, a skilled nursing facility. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not what we want for patients. And we feel like we can do a lot of things to prevent that. So pulmonary status doesn't really scare us. We have thresholds, but it's hard because that's not validating the research. We need to validate it, but who do we pick to be a control group in our right. ICU? When we know that this is effective, why would we do anything different for people? Why would we do any less? So um, you can't research what you don't do. And so, but we've seen that people can tolerate it and they thrive when they're moving, even on high ventilator settings. The ventilator is doing the work for them. Now their body gets to do the rest of the work so that it can stay strong and they can actually move on with life once they do get better. And they're more likely to get better if they do. The brain, um, delirium can make it really hard to walk. I mean, you, even if you have the strength, you can't necessarily coordinate the movements. But it's amazing to watch if someone's too delirious to really even stand up, just sitting at the side of the bed, you watch the lights go on. Their brain starts to work better. They start to make more eye contact, follow more commands. So we try again later. So some nurses I will come into the RICU to, as float nurses or whatnot, and they'll tell physical therapy, oh, no, he's too confused. We'll, we'll just skip this round. And physical therapy says, what are you talking about? This is, this is our treatment for the delirium. Right. This is how we stimulate their brain. This is how we get going again. So it's, again, a paradigm shift. So if someone's delirious, we're not going to just throw them out of bed um, we're going to see what they can do and do that. And every time we're going to try something more and it's amazing to watch people's brains get better, but why let their bodies rot while their brains are altered? Yep. So, so it couldn't agree more. And it's so, I mean, it, I, I feel like what you're describing and what you guys do in your ICU is so inspirational. I kind of think we all should be taking a field trip to see it and that would probably people be do. the best. Oh, I'm sure. And I think that would be an incredible way to, get people on board that this actually can be done. So you've learned a lot also from talking to patients on your podcast and in general, um, as we all should. Tell me, um, and you've mentioned a lot, but if, are there other kind of highlights, things you've learned from patients, real compelling stories that you know um, you could give us a snippet of? of what, what do patients say about their experience um, being intubated in an ICU? It's so different listening to patients. You read through the research and the research alone is very compelling. I mean, it's it's very clear that we harm people when we sedate and immobilize them. But it becomes so much more personal and your conviction increases when you hear people talk about, like one patient said that, one survivor said that she thought that she was being buried alive. So they played religious music in her room while she was sedated. And she took that as, I'm in a, in a morgue or mortuary. Mm-hmm. And they're going to bury me alive. And she was panicked, trying to open her eyes, trying to tell someone that she was alive and not to bury her. So now when she's in an elevator, she's in the store and she hears that kind of music, it triggers her into a panic attack. And that has greatly altered her life. Um, again, the, the kidnapping, I mean, that would, that would be mortifying. I want to know if I'm in ICU. I want to know if I'm dying. That's fine. But don't let me think my kids are kidnapped. That hits a whole nother, yeah. nother level. The cognitive deficits didn't, mean much to me before. I didn't really know what that meant until I heard survivors talking about, I can't do simple math. I can't drive because I forget where I'm going or my response time is so delayed. So I'm in my forties and I can't drive. Um, people not being able to go back to their careers. I mean, there's a huge rate of inability to resume their careers um, for ICU survivors. That might be scarier to me than PTSD. It's hard because I haven't haven't experienced either, but I feel like my baseline cognitive function is poor enough that I don't really need it to get worse. So if I go in for sepsis for something else, don't break my brain at the same time. And we can't control everything, but when we know that sedation breaks brains, that's a huge problem if we give it with that knowledge. Um, I didn't value the the importance of movement. Um, I think we take it for granted what it's like to be able to get yourself out of bed, brush your own teeth, wipe your own backside. I mean, the sense of dignity and identity that patients have when they're able to do that. I just didn't appreciate it. So one patient said that, or survivor said that he didn't have PTSD from sedation. He didn't have any experiences, which is great. His PTSD came from waking up and not being able to lift a finger being trapped in his body. And so I've interviewed a number of survivors now that experienced that, where they were so weak, they couldn't even hold their own head up. And it was so frustrating for them. And they lose so much autonomy and dignity and spend months trying to regain that functionality, but they still don't 
go back to their baseline most of the time. And so that changed my perspective too. It, it makes it so much more real. So I, I think back to my days as a, as a travel nurse and I wish that I'd known more, but at the same time, it would have been so much harder to be in that environment with this kind of knowledge. So with some of our COVID patients that have to be paralyzed and deeply sedated, I feel like a kid that found out that Santa is not real. Now that I know that sedation is not sleep, it is so much harder for me to sedate people because I look at them and I think about all these survivors telling me about their, their terrors and I wonder what they're experiencing. Do they think that the temperature probe is a gun? Do they think that we're, I, they just, they misinterpret everything and it's terrible. And so I don't want that for anyone. And even our survivor, COVID survivor that I mentioned before, he, he had terrible hallucinations and delirium under sedation. And, and I wish that we could have avoided it better, but sometimes you can't, but when you can, you'd better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, people I think will, will want to and should check out your podcast to hear more and, and, I, and actually from patients in their own voices. But this is, you know, um, from my own experience, uh, talking to uh, people who have survived ICU stays, sometimes we have folks come back. Um, you know, it is, it rings true. I mean, this is absolutely what people feel. And I think you're, you're really, um, right on that we can do better and we should, and we should be, we should feel an obligation to do better by our patients. Is there anything that we haven't touched on, uh, that you want to touch on before we, uh, end here, Kelly? It's been an incredibly, um, educational and, uh, and really interesting conversation so far. I get a lot of questions about how to change a culture. And I can't speak to that because I was blessed to walk into this kind of environment. Um, but a really good episode is, um, with Polly Bailey, she was actually the creator of this whole process. Back in the 90s, she was a nurse, and she followed a patient after the ICU. And this is in the days when we had really deep benzodiazepine drips and paralytics were on for much longer. But she watched this mother in her 30s not be able to get up the stairs for a year. And she went back to her medical director. And this is the 90s. She's a nurse. There's no research on this. And she says, we're breaking people. We have to stop. Let me keep people awake and moving. And um, Dr. Terry Klimmer, um, he's on episode two. He talks about how he was doubtful. He was really resilient to this kind of concept, but he trusted nurses. He trusted their instincts and he was open to evolution within the medical field. And so Polly started working on this. They had to open up another ICU to even get this going. They opened up another ICU. They brought in all rehab nursing home nurses, taught them the other ICU stuff, but they had to start from a blank slate culturally. And that's how this became so normal. We hire a lot of new grads, a lot of people with no ICU experience because it's almost easier when they have no preconceived notions. They're just like me. It was just normal. And so I think um, we need to talk to each other interdisciplinary wise. Physical therapists get it. When I talk to them online, they're so excited to find someone from the medical side that has shared the perspective because physical therapists are the ones that have to clean up the mess that we make. So we need to learn how to work together, how to trust each other, how to formulate plans together. If we're just working in silos, this will never work. But as far as the medical side, listen to the nurses. Nurses, go back to your why, look at the research, look at the patient perspective. And as we work together on this and involve ICU survivors, they will continually give us our why, and then we'll be able to find our how. That's incredibly compelling. Couldn't agree more. Um, and I really appreciate it. Um, so, Callie, let me ask you, I forgot to warn you about this, so it's fine if you don't have anything, but um, I do like to ask folks, especially in the kind of time of some quarantining still from COVID, um, is there something you've been doing, watching, reading, cooking, uh, anything that has been interesting uh, when you need to get your mind off of work that you would recommend folks check out? Uh, you know, I have two kids, two and under, and life is crazy. And so they are my distraction. <laughs> yeah, I believe you. Two kids, two and under. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, twins or just uh, close together? No, just close together. Just BFFs, hopefully. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, how about what um, do you do? Uh, any, I guess two and under is tough for cooking. We, Mine are a little older. We've done some, a lot of cooking that's been a lot of fun. Um do you do any uh, particular, I'm thinking if folks out there have, have little kids under two, any games, toys, anything they really like that you'd recommend? We just go on a lot of um, outdoor adventures, which with two kids, two and under, I mean, it's going to stream, throwing rocks in the streams, it's like watching ducks. Um, life just really changes when you have two little kids. We go on yeah. hikes, 
we do like we just pack them onto our backs and hike around and so Utah's a great place for that which I'm grateful for during quarantine that's a sanity saver for sure yeah that's great I think being outdoors is 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 absolutely fantastic and um actually very much in th- in the theme of our our episode we didn't talk about that but um you know if you can get people up and walking you may be able to take them outside and we do. We, we take them onto that. We've taken them onto the helicopter pad. They throw in a Hawaiian yeah. luau for someone that was terminal on the ventilator outside. Um, you can do lots of things, and again, it comes with starting from the beginning. Absolutely. Um, well, I'll I'll add for folks out there um, who may have not have little kids and do have some time to themselves. Uh, one thing that's <laughs> been fun we discovered recently: uh, there's a show on Apple TV Plus. Which, if you buy, uh, if you get anything from Apple these days, I think certainly, I think an iPad or a phone or a computer, you get a free year of Apple TV plus along with it. Uh, and uh, so we got that and we have watched the morning show, which is the show with uh, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Steve Carell. And it was really well done. It's only unfortunately one season, 10 episodes. So it's, it's not a lot. Um, but it, that is a really well done, well acted, uh, ep- uh, season of a TV show that brought a lot of really, I think, important and interesting topics up, uh, very enjoyable, very entertaining. So if you're looking for a show to check out, um, that is one to think about. I could use some adult entertainment. So thank you. There you go. There <laughs> must be a time when those kids sleep for you, even if yep. not very often. Um, well, Callie, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time, uh, and for all that you're doing to try to better the experience of patients in the ICU. Thanks so much. I look forward to collaboration. Appreciate it. All right. That was fantastic. I learned a ton from Callie there, as I'm sure many people did. She's really an expert in this area. And what I love is that she's not just someone who has become familiar with the literature. She's actively participating in making this stuff happen. And I think we all need to be able to do more like she is doing. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, acrac.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Let us know if you are doing the same stuff. If you've had experience with it, what have you found? You can follow us on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Walpaw. You can also join the Facebook group and be part of the conversation there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or venmo.com slash jwolpaw. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really, really appreciate it. Huge thank you to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, April Liu, and, of course, the other member of our team, our prior social media manager, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who remains on helping with some of the episode outlines. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Callie Dayton, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.